0: Hello, welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, I'm John Green, your host today, and we are the Sunday after Pentecost, which in um, Anglican tradition, in um, traditions that have a common lectionary, which would mean the, the readings are the same um, and prescribed for you uh, week after week during the year, this would be Trinity Sunday. I'll be honest with you, there's so much going on in the world, and uh, I just didn't feel up to preaching Trinity Sunday. I'm um, not going to make any excuse for it other than I just didn't feel like trying to pour through all that this week. And there was too much else going on, too many things that were bothering me. And, um, so I'm going to do something different. I'm going to preach on the daily lectionary. You see, in, in uh, the Anglican world, what we have is, are two different lectionaries, which means reading plan, essentially. So we have a Sunday... Uh, lectionary, which is a three-year cycle. So you have year A, year B, and year C, and at the end of year C, you lather, rinse, and repeat. And so our lessons are given for us week after week throughout the church year. Um, So we we can look down the road and see, what am I going to be preaching three years from now on uh, June the 17th? It'll be these lessons, unless I choose to do something different so um, we have the, the Sunday lectionary, and then we have a daily cycle of readings where you read most of the Bible in a two-year reading cycle. And again, at the end of year two, you lather, rinse, and repeat. Um, in addition to that, I guess, I could say also that we have uh, another lectionary that's specific to the Psalms. And the way that works is it's a 30-day cycle, so you read all the Psalms, every single one, every single verse, every 30 days. Um, it, it's the... If you follow these things, you have immersed yourself deeply in the word of God. Most people don't, is the honest truth about that. And so uh, I did for seven years or something like that. I wrote the daily lectionary. I wrote a commentary on the daily lectionary, about four or five hundred words every single day. I haven't done that now in several years. I'm doing other things now. And so I don't have as much time as I used to have but it was a great discipline and a great practice to reflect on the word of God every single day in that way. And in a way that, that combined the lectionary, the the other thing I should tell you about the lectionary is, is that for every single day, there is um, a Psalm, an old Testament lesson, a reading from the gospel and a reading from uh, one of the epistles. So my, uh, my task that I set before myself was to pull those lessons together every day so that people could see Scripture as a coherent whole, um, that that there was no difference between the psalm, the Old Testament lesson, and then the two readings from the New Testament. And so that's um, what I did. And so what I'm doing today is taking the uh, daily lessons for today, June the 7th of 2020, and I'm going to look at those. And so those um, include Job 38, 1 to 11, and then skip forward to Job 42, 1 to 5, Revelation 194 through 16, and John 1, 29 to 34. So we'll reflect on those with you today. And, and what jumped out at me about those was was how much they have to say about today, particularly um, all that's going on, the protests that have been going on for the last 10, 11 days, and um, just want to reflect on that a little bit, and this gives me a place where I can do that. I, I want to focus, I think, at, on the Revelation passage, but then I'm going to bring something really strange in, something I'm just learning about. So it's Revelation 19, 4 to 16, and I just want to read that in its entirety to you. Twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the crowd came a voice saying, Praise our God, from the throne, sorry, not from the crowd, from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunders, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with what fine linen, pure and bright. And then John gives us an explanation. It says, For the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. So the bride is clothed in the fine linen, which John tells us is the righteous deed of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, the angel, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful he will shred the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So I want to reflect on multiple things today about this. Um, one of the things is that, that we have to be careful. I think We should um, fight against injustice. But we should also discern the times. We should discern exactly what it is that's going on around us. Don't be pushed and forced into having an opinion either right or left on something until you've given it time to pray about these things, to given it time to, for God to reveal some things. It's easy and right for us to condemn what happened to George Floyd. There is no question we should absolutely speak out and say there was something horribly wrong that happened in the situation that caused that man's death. Um, The police officer who knelt on him for three minutes after he stopped responding, obviously there's something wrong there. The people around who watched that and didn't take action during that time, obviously something horribly, horribly wrong there. What's happened since then? I don't know. I have to stand back. I have to look and say, what's going on? What's going on here? There's there's certainly a need and a, a good in um, seeking justice. I, I don't doubt that a bit, and there, there's something here that needs to be protested, needs to be brought forth, needs to be dealt with. I'm not sure what else is going on. What other agendas? are being played out in all this on either side. It's a very confusing thing to figure out why is this happening? Why is it sort of being allowed to happen? Why is it going on all this time? How Did, did this come completely out of the blue? It, it seems odd. What I want to say is, as Christians is that we need to always stand for justice and truth and mercy. We should actually have the same reaction no matter who. Is unjustly treated. This should literally be the reaction of the church anytime someone is killed in such a situation. But not only in that situation, but in every situation where life is taken. We, the church, should mourn that life. We should grieve that life. We should protest for justice. I'm not trying to take away from the, the history of America or anything like that. What I'm saying is we, the church, need to pursue justice in all forms of justice. We need to pursue justice no less for uh, any life that's unjustly taken or deprived. I mean, I watched a, a, a beautiful thing on America's Got Talent recently where a man had been falsely imprisoned for 30-some odd years. And he came on and he sang beautifully. And he gave credit to God for being with him in that, during all that time. Injustice has many, many forms, and the church should take that very seriously. The church should be on the front lines of protesting all injustice. It's an important thing. The righteous deeds of the saints have much to do, not just with... with um, obeying the, the commandments to live a, a good life you know, one uh, with the precepts of God, but also the, the ones who sought justice, who sought to proclaim the gospel in places where the gospel was desperately needed, but those who fought for justice. Those who took the concept of justice seriously and believed that even on earth, even a place that we know is beset by sin and fallen, that, that justice remains an important thing and there's a belief that justice can be had in this world even though we know that it cannot because there's no such thing as perfect justice in this world but we need to at the same time we pursue it in this world because God would have us do that and that's the reason we celebrate men like William Wilberforce who sought to do away with um, slavery in Britain and made it his life's work, in fact, to do that. That's the reason we celebrate people like him. It's the reason that that we look, though, at the same time at what it took to do away with slavery in America. and we look at the Civil War and we see how many lives had to be given for that, whether we believe that the that, that Civil War was a fight over slavery or many things is immaterial in some ways because it was the thing that gripped the country, and, and men died. Many men died. Fortunes were lost. The American Revolution was a fight over injustice. On the taxation side of the lives, many lives were lost in that as well. We fought to establish a more perfect union, to something that, that would last, something that was dedicated to God, that was based in natural rights that are given by God. And then enumerated those things in the Villabites. and so we—how do we see ourselves in this this struggle? And it's it's a cosmic struggle. It's, it has to do with everything. It has to do with eternity. This life does, in some ways, has to do with eternity and its establishment of justice in the world, and its incumbent upon us as Christians to do that very thing, knowing that we'll never perfectly get that right. But we have to be careful how we align ourselves and with whom we align ourselves. And I believe it's important to do that because the first thing we have to do is align ourselves with Jesus, align ourselves with the one who is faithful and true, who judges in righteousness and makes war. The one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. So that back in, in those times, that, that one who was king over multiple kingdoms wore multiple crowns. Jesus has many diadems because he is king over all. Remember, he was promised in the beginning of his, his life of ministry, as it were, in the temptation of the wilderness, he was promised all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, the one who now has many diadems is Jesus, and he's the one who does have all the, the crowns of all the earth. And remember, the, the ones who are around the throne cast their crowns around the throne, and they become his crowns. He wears all the crowns. And then it says something that's really strange. And this is kind of what I want to focus on for the second half of this little talk. And that is, he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. There's something yet to be revealed. There's something hidden from us that only he knows. Now, remember that those who believe are given a white stone on which a name is written that only is known to the one who receives that stone. That's in Revelation 6. And so here... He has a name written that no one knows but himself. We think we know everything, but we don't know everything. And I think that's the big point that I want to talk about today. Because if you look at the other lessons that we have, you get Job. And and where where that begins is Job, for 37 chapters, has disputed with his, quote, friends about why all these horrible things have happened. And his friends say, you're not righteous. That's the real problem. There's sin here that had to be dealt with. and, And it must be horrible, Job, because all these horrible things happen to you. Therefore, your sin must be equally abhorrent. And Job protests his innocence. Throughout the entire book, Job protests his innocence. And what he wants is for God to come and judge him. He wants God to come and proclaim his innocence. He wants vindication. And justification in the sight of his friends. Because he knows that he's done nothing wrong. And as I've said before, Job's theology, their theology, is all our default theology. It's sort of karma theology. And that is, is, you, is you get recompense for what you do. There, therefore you sin, therefore you must be Punished. So he wants God to come. And he wants God to answer him. He wants God to explain why this happened to him. And he wants him to explain it to him. But he also really wants him to explain it to his friends. He wants to be vindicated in their eyes. And after 37 chapters of that disputation, we come to chapter 38. And it begins, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. He said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. So God shows up, says, let's have a talk. Who in the world do you think you are? You darken counsel by words without knowledge. Job thinks he knows. His friends think they know. God says, who are you people that you darken counsel by words without knowledge? I'll question you and you make it known to me. And do you know that over the next four chapters, all God does is question Job about creation. Can you explain creation to me? As you were surely there, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? He begins, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God can deal in sarcasm with his people. See that again in Numbers 11. But who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who shut the sea in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, "Thus far shall you come and no further," and here shall your proud waves be stayed? And he goes on and on and on for four chapters. I mean, it's it's an enormous beatdown for Job. But it's not the point. It's not a beat down. The point is to humble Job. Because Job has called God and put him in the dock to give witness against Job. And God here reverses that whole thing and said, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? But I believe at the end of this too, the other thing God's saying is, is, is that Job, from the time of creation forward, you'd have to know every single thing. To understand why your situation is the way that it is and we should stand in awe and humility before a holy God and finally after all those four chapters of God asking Job questions Job responds and says I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted who is this that hides counsel without knowledge Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I'll speak. I'll question you and you make it known to me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And so Job stops asking questions. He doesn't ask God one more time. Can you please explain to me what happened? Why I lost everything? No, he doesn't care anymore. Because he knows God cares enough to show up and to... To say, Job, I got it. I got it all. You can't get answers in, in this life. Don't expect it. But this isn't the end. And Job knows that because he's already said it. That he knows that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will come. And he will stand on the earth. And he will vindicate me. He knew that. And so now Job says, look, I know you got it. I know who you are. And I know who I am in the, in the grand scheme of things. And that's okay for me. And he's satisfied with that response. I don't know many people who would say today that I'd be satisfied with that response. But when God shows up, when you see him, then nothing else truly matters. In our uh, gospel reading today, it's, it's John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me. And then he goes on to say, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. He said, I didn't even know him. I just did what I was told to do. I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. I didn't know him. God didn't show me this information in advance. He just told me to go and baptize people. And then John said, I saw the spirit descend from him from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And he says it again I myself did not know it. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John says, I didn't foreknow these things. God didn't reveal this stuff to me in advance. He gave me an indication of when I saw something, then I would know it. But not until. It's like the sign that God gave to Moses when he told him to go and lead the people out of Egypt. He, he says, what sign will you give me, Moses says. And God says, here's the sign. When you have done this, you will worship me here on this mountain. It's not exactly the sign I was looking for. I wanted one now. John said, I, I was told to do something and I did it. And the purpose of it was to, that he might be revealed to Israel. But God told me in advance that when this happens, you'll know. Remember the story of the birth of John? Remember the story of the birth of Jesus? Remember they're connected? John's mother, Jesus' mother, kinswomen, John's mother, remember, Elizabeth recognizes, when Mary comes to her. But John says, I didn't know him. In spite of all that, John says, I didn't know him, but now I do. And once he latched on to the truth that God showed him, then he held on to that, to the end. We don't know what we don't know. The name that is written that no one knows but himself. There's something yet to be revealed. There's something we don't know. And so I found something fascinating in this week's other lectionary, which is the Jewish lectionary. The partial for this week is called Bailochka. And in the middle of Bailochka are two verses, numbers <laughs> from Numbers 10, verses 35 and 36. And it's a fascinating thing. It's something that that is it baffles the Jewish rabbis and commentators. They don't know what to make of, of this. It's something that that beggars the imagination and, and they're just not sure. And it's a place that place in numbers is bracketed, as it were, by a couple of letters. There are five letters in the Hebrew alphabet that are written differently at the end of a sentence than they are at the beginning of a sentence. And the letter here is the letter nun, N-U-N. And it would show up as an inverted nun. It's written backwards at the end of a sentence and not at the beginning of a sentence. And here's what it says. Whatever the ark set out there in the wilderness moving on from the mountain. Um, Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So the ark would go forward ahead of the people, and the presence of God in the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, would go with the ark, and it would go three days ahead of them to prepare a place and prepare a way and make sure that everything was safe ahead. So when the ark set out, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. So he's clearing a path. And then when it stopped three days out, Moses would ask for return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. Please come back to us. Because we don't feel safe here without you. And what they say is that that text is bracketed with those nuns. And that that forms a book of its own. There's still only five books of Torah, but they say that this sort of makes it seven, even though it's five. Sounds familiar, like Trinitarian theology, right? There's three, but there's one. There's one, but there's three. And so what they say here is, is that there's there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, that's three. Numbers 1, 1 to Numbers 10, 34 is four. Numbers 1035 to 1036 is 5. From 1037 to the end of Numbers is 6. And then Deuteronomy is 7. But what they also can't agree on is what's going on here. This is the only place where this appears in the five books of Moses, this odd thing, these inverted nuns. So they can't figure out exactly what's going on here. It confuses the sages. And so... What do you do with that? And so there's multiple options for that. I mean, I'm going to share them with you real quickly. And one is that they um, they're to, that these verses are to be questioned until Elijah returns to declare if these verses are inspired or not. They're just not sure. But others say mm, actually this means they're more important, and we've got to study them because we don't really understand what's going on here. And then there's another one, and that is is that among the Orthodox, what they believe is these don't actually belong right here in this setting. These verses belong somewhere else. And only after Messiah returns will we know where they belong. That what God wanted to write there actually was something like this. And they came into the promised land. But he couldn't write that because of the sin of the spies, which kept them from going into the promised land. And so there's a, there's a, There's a prophetic pause here where it should say, and they came into the land, but it can't say they came into the land. So that has to wait. That part of the Torah is not yet written, therefore it's not yet known. It's a fascinating thing, and there's a lot of messianic implications for all this. The word nun, not just the letter, but the word nun, is said by the sages to represent both faithfulness and a reward for faithfulness. And Moses is seen as the humble servant of the Lord, who is the paradigm for nun. And the the way the letters are written is interesting too. Rashi, one of the great commentators, says that the the visual uh, appearance of the letters, because one of them looks like it's a bent kneeling, that one who is humble before God will stand upright in the final day. In the present life, that means that the righteous man will simultaneously affirm two things. I'm nothing but dust. Dust and the world was made for my sake. Is there anybody, anybody in all of Scripture who fulfills that ideal, the one who is humble before God will stand upright in the final day than Jesus. The one who prayed, Father let this cup pass from me but be it done to me according to your will. The one who humbled himself completely before God pays the ultimate price but in the end he will stand upright. And he will be the only one who stands upright as every knee bows to him. There's so much interesting in this odd little thing about we don't know what this means. We don't know the end of this story. It remains to be written. What makes it even stranger this to Nun's is, is that they are given special adornment in this scroll by having little dots written above them, and what they call those are crownlets. And so it's interesting that here's a Midrashic uh, interpretation of where those come from and why those things are there. Remember, he is crowned with many crowns. So these show that. Madrash says... Um, That this goes back to the part of the giving of the Torah. Moses went up to God and he found God sitting and putting little crowns on the top of these letters of the law. He said to God, who is it that forces you to put crowns on the letters of the law, which you've already written? And he replied, a man is to appear on earth after many generations. Like even Joseph by name, who will expound for each top of every letter of the law, heaps and heaps of rulings. One who will talk about jots and tittles wears these crowns. He's the one we look to. And so when we want wisdom, we ask God, what is that name? What is it? We come to the crossroads and we ask the question, where should I go? And we wait for his answer. We know that we speak out against injustice in this world with other things that men do, we're to be careful. We're to confess there's much we do not know when we stand before the Lord. We come before him with humility and we await him speaking to us about which way we should go in our minds, in our words, and in our actions. For there's much I don't know. And I come before you seeking wisdom and understanding about the ways of men. That place in this world. We cry out for justice. For Judge George Floyd. We cry out for justice for all. Who suffer unjustly in this world. Wherever they may be. But give us hearts that mourn. And long for justice pray these things in the name of Jesus. Thanks for being along on the journey today with Faith Seeking Understanding. Again, I'm John Green. I'm the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. Please feel free to interact with me on Facebook about this message or any of the messages that that I do. Um, And I will put the address to the Facebook page in the notes to this show.